Well, I want to greet all of you in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be together. I have three books I want to mention as we get into the sermon this morning. One of them is the first epistle of Peter. You can turn there if you like. Plan on continuing the first two verses of that book as a text for this message. The other two books might be less familiar with you. One of them is always on a list of the top 10 greatest novels ever written. It was written in the 19th century by Charles Dickens. The name of the book is A Tale of Two Cities. It's a story set in a time of prosperous, powerful France, right before the French Revolution, and all the suffering and atrocities, um, some of the greatest examples of man's inhumanity to man, tremendous suffering happened in the French Revolution. Tale of Two Cities begins with a line that is always listed as the most famous, greatest first line of any book ever written. Whether you've read the book or not, you're probably familiar with the opening line of it. The opening line is, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Goes on to describe the uh, deceptiveness of the power and prosperity in France before the French Revolution. People thought they had it all. People were rejoicing, they were celebrating, they were healthy and wealthy. And incredible suffering was about to come on them and they didn't know it. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Another book I want to mention is a book uh, I imagine many of you have heard of. I hope very few of you have read. Certainly not recommending it. It is a book that is one of the most best-selling Christian books written in my lifetime anyway. It's written by Joel Osteen, who some of you may know. He's a, a megachurch preacher. He's a prosperity, health and wealth uh, gospel preacher, Pentecostal, I guess would be what he would identify as. But he wrote a book called Your Best Life Now. He wrote that about 15 years ago. How many have heard of that book, Your Best Life Now? All right, I'm not going to ask who read it because I already said it's going to be a little, little awkward or embarrassing. I, I think there's uh, just enough of truth in that book to be deceptive but very little truth. Your Best Life Now was written in 2004. It was reissued in 2014, and it sold over 8 million copies. And Joel Osteen has made enough money off of that book to buy multiple jumbo jets, which he owns and flies around on. That book was so popular, they've issued a calendar, a comic book, a study guide, and a board game, all titled Your Best Life Now. Joel Osteen's gospel is that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and happy, and experience your best life now. Okay, that's two books. The Tale of Two Cities and Your Best Life Now. The Apostle Peter has a different message. His message would not be it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It would be turned around. Apostle Peter, as we work through the epistle of 1 Peter, would begin his book with the statement, it was the worst of times, it was the best of times. And that is, according to Scripture, what we experience in the Christian life. That is, the suffering and tribulation, the difficulties, the sorrows, the headaches and heartbreaks, that we experience in this life are our lot in life. This is normal living in in the Christian life. And yet, in the midst of suffering and tribulation, the worst of times, if you will, the glory of the future is always before us. And that's what our hope is. Our hope is in the future. Our best life is in the future. If you've turned to 1 Peter, I'd like to use the first two verses as a text for the message. Why don't we, as you're able, stand for the reading of the word of God here. 
First Peter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Okay, thank you. You can be seated. I said a tale of two cities begins with an amazing first line. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. The epistle of first Peter begins with an even more amazing first sentence. These two verses represent that sentence. There's a tremendous amount of weight of doctrine in these first words of this epistle, in this first sentence. I don't know if you would have the temptation I would, and that is let's blow through this introduction and get into the meat and the potatoes of the epistle. The problem is this first sentence is the meat and the potatoes of the epistle. This is a foundation, and Peter's going to spend the rest of this epistle and the next epistle building off of this foundation. What he's defining here as marks of the people of God is nothing less than the foundation of the Christian faith. So I think we uh, owe this first sentence a little bit of attention. I mentioned in the last sermon that there are seven characteristics listed here that are defining characteristics of the people of God. And you can follow them through this first two verses. That is, that the people of God are a strange people. Maybe that doesn't sound quite right. Strangers. The people of God are a scattered people. The people of God are elect. The people of God are foreknown. The people of God are sanctified. People of God are obedient and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's seven defining characteristics. The last message we covered the first two, that is strangers and scattered. I'd like to move on from there. It's kind of disappointing to have five or six weeks between sermons because we lose a lot of continuity between messages. One nice thing about CBS is three weeks of classes for me, it was day after day and I didn't have to spend half of the message catching people up and reviewing. But uh, I do want to review a little bit about what it means as the people of God to be a strange people and a scattered people. First, strangers. I gave you some synonyms for strangers, some different translations, the word for strangers. I used words like exiles, expatriates, foreigners, sojourners, pilgrims, basically people that are not at home in this world. If you find the world to be a comfortable place and it feels like home, that's not a good sign. There should be a discomfort. There should be that feeling that you have when you're with people you don't know in a place that you're not familiar with kind of anticipating that next week in Ontario. It's not going to feel like home. I'm sure it'll be a friendly place and all, but I won't get confused and think I'm at home. And whether they get to know me a little bit and appreciate me or not, I'm going to be a stranger there. They know each other. They don't know me very well. I know you all. I don't know them very well. I'm clearly going to be a stranger there. People of God are defined as being strangers in the world. Definition of a pilgrim is a foreign traveler on a religious journey to a sacred place. Are you on a journey in this world or are you quite at home? All right, that was the first mark of the people of God. The people of God are defined by being strangers in the world. The second defining mark was that they're a scattered people. A scattered people. I kind of threw that word out and said, I like what the Amplified uses instead of the word scattered. And that is sowed abroad. Sowed like S-O-W-E-D, like you sow seed. The reason I like that better is because it's an accurate translation of the Greek word that's used there. The Greek word is diaspora. 
It's actually two words in Greek, a compound word. Dia means all and spora means seated. Seated everywhere, sowed abroad. The people of God do not pile up. They're sowed abroad. There's a big difference between being sowed abroad and being scattered. Okay, if there's a pile of Legos on the floor and I'm walking through the living room in the dark and I kick it, I've scattered the pile. There's no rhyme or reason to that scattering. There's no intention. It actually was kind of accidental and annoying and messy and untidy. That's scattering. Sowed abroad is something that's done carefully. It's done with a purpose. It's done by a sovereign, someone who has an intention that wants to accomplish something. The people of God are not scattered. They are sowed abroad. They are a dispersion. Diaspora. I'm going to be careful not to use too much of my, my time on renew, review. I told my wife I make the mistake of spending half of my sermon introducing it and half of my sermon reviewing the last sermon and then try to use the last half of the sermon to cover new material. And fortunately, there aren't three halves of time on the clock. All right, I don't want to spend too much time reviewing, but I did want to give you a flavor for what we're doing here, looking at these defining marks for the people of God. There's seven of them, and we covered strangers, and we covered sowed abroad or scattered. The last comment I wanted to make about being sowed abroad is that we weren't, we were put here for a purpose and a reason. It's God's express purpose that we be here in this place at this time. We can rest in that. We're not here by accident. But we also are challenged by the fact that we are not designed to remain here in a pile. We're not supposed to pile up. A seed is planted, it grows up, it produces fruit. That fruit contains more seed, and that seed is sowed abroad to germinate another plant, to grow up and produce more fruit, and so on. This is what God is doing. It's how the kingdom of God is multiplying. All right, I want to get into... Five more marks. I'm usually encouraged by the minister's meeting in the morning. There's usually something said if you're preaching to make you feel a little better about the sermon. And this morning, Daniel uh, looked at what I said I wanted to cover this morning, and he said, you're not going to get through all of that. So I wasn't feeling terribly encouraged by that, but uh, we'll see how we do. Um, I didn't fully expect to get through it anyway, but doesn't hurt to try. There are five more marks in this first sentence of the book of 1 Peter that are defining characteristics of the people of God. Five more marks. I want to start with number three. I'm actually going to lump number three and four together. If you look in verse two, it begins saying that the people of God are elect and the people of God are foreknown of God. Elect and foreknown of God. This is the first sentence of the letter, remember. Right off the bat, election, foreknowledge, chosen, predestinated. Peter, what are you thinking? Predestination is complicated. It's controversial. It's contentious. It's difficult. It's divisive. Even dangerous. Why are we... Considering predestination right off the bat in the introduction here. Is it possible it's because it's important? People of God are elect and foreknown of God. I think that it's so important that you could almost call predestination and election an apostolic obsession. And I say that because Peter, in First Peter, right off the bat, first sentence, throws it out there. You're elect. Paul, in Titus, first sentence, first verse, first chapter, says we are God's elect. John, in Second John, first sentence, says that the epistle is written to the elect lady and her children. So election seems to be something we're going to have to deal with, even if it makes us uncomfortable. I am not going to cover the doctrine of election and predestination so you can breathe a sigh of relief. I'm not sure I'm qualified to do that entirely. 
But I do want to point out a couple of problems that I think are why we find it so uncomfortable and contentious and difficult when it's meant to be something that gives us hope and comfort and encouragement. If I can accomplish that on the doctrine of election, I think I've done well. All right. What I want to do is we consider election and God's choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. How can this be? And at the same time, God accepts whosoever will come to him. How can these both be true? I think that the reason that we get tangled up in them is because we perform a mistake with the scriptures, a serious mistake. It's a simple mistake, but it's very serious. I want to ask you a question. Is it bad to personalize scripture to yourself? Or is it good? Is it good to personalize scripture to yourself? Is it good or bad? I'd like to say that the answer to that question is absolutely yes. It is good and it is bad. It depends on the scripture. It isn't safe to personalize all of scripture to yourself. I want to give you an example. We've done foster care here for some time. And many of you would remember the little girl, Ariel, that was with us, 10-year-old girl. was with us for a couple years. And I remember one time having a conversation with her and talking about John 3.16. I personalized John 3.16 to Ariel. I stated that scripture to her in a personal form. For God so loved Ariel that he sent his only begotten son, that if Ariel believes on him, she need not perish, but can experience eternal life. Did I do something wrong with the scripture there? No. Okay, that was helpful. I personalized the scripture to Ariel. It didn't improve the scripture, but it didn't damage it either. It might have helped her understood that Jesus came not just for the world, but for her personally. Okay, that was... I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I think that was a good thing to do with the scripture. Personalize the scripture to a little girl. Help her understand it. I think that with election, we personalize the scripture and we distort it and we create a problem. And this is where the stress comes with the doctrine of election and predestination. I'll say right off the bat that if you don't believe in the doctrine of predestination, then you are not a scriptural Christian, because the Holy Spirit believes in it and teaches on it. Predestination is not an option. We don't have to debate whether it's true or not. Predestination is the clear teaching of scripture. The problem, I think, is we've personalized something that was meant to be a corporate doctrine. I'll give you an example. I see a few uh, glassy eyes already. I'm hardly into the sermon. Sorry for that. Why don't we dispel some of this morning fogginess. I ask you all to stand as you're able. All right, I want to show you an example of distorting the scripture by taking a corporate doctrine that's meant for the body and making it personal. Okay, I'm going to read you part of a verse. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Ye are the body of Christ. Comfortable with that? Ye are the body of Christ. I'm standing here in front of, at least at Shade Mountain, locally here, the body of Christ. To decide who I want to pick on. Who made me grumpy lately? I'm... No. Um, I'm going to ask everyone except Merv, please, to sit down. I'm not grumpy at you, Merv. But everyone, Merv, sit down. All right, I'm going to take a doctrine that was meant for the body of Christ and make it personal to Merv as he stands there awkwardly and uncomfortably. Sorry, just be for a moment. At least you're at the back of the auditorium. Merv, you are the body of Christ. Are we all comfortable with that? 
Now, I've distorted an important doctrine in the word of God by taking something met for the body and applying it to an individual. Thanks. Merv is not the body of Christ. We, corporately, are the body of Christ. I took truth that was very important and fundamental to the Christian faith and turned it into nonsense. And worse than nonsense, it's a deception. And I think this is what we've done with the doctrine of election and predestination, which is kind of a cousin to it. We wrestle with this idea that how can man have free will and yet be predestinated? How can we have personal responsibility to respond in faith to the gospel and still be chosen in Christ before the creation of the world? How can we be saved or damned by what we do with Christ individually and yet be elect, chosen of God. I think what's going on here is we've taken something that was meant to be applied to the body of Christ and try to apply it to an individual and say, am I elect to be a child of God? Am I predestinated to be a child of God? Well, you can't answer that question because it's nonsense. Taking a corporate doctrine and trying to make it personal. Some scriptures that's safe and helpful. Election was never meant to be applied to individuals. In 2 John chapter 1, verse 1, where it begins to the elect lady and her children, it's speaking about the church. The church was elect. The individual children were not. Turn with me to, not very far, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We'll get to this verse someday, Lord willing, but for now it's helpful to talk about the doctrine of election. And that is that God has elected a people, not individuals. God has chosen a people, not individuals. God has predestinated a people, not individuals. Verse 9, ye, which is King James for y'all, you all, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you all should show forth the praises of him that has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You're chosen. You are elect as a group. You are a chosen generation. You are not necessarily a chosen individual. This is not just a new covenant thing. In the old covenant, God called out a people not individuals. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. I should have warned you to hold on to 1 Peter 1, because we are going to come back. Deuteronomy. Considering this idea that what God has called is a people. Chapter 7, verse 6. God says to his chosen elect, predestinated people. He says, thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen, elect, predestinated thee to be a special people unto him above all people that are on the face of the earth. God has chosen and called and elected a people. Flip a couple pages ahead to Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. Thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen, elected, predestinated thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Deuteronomy 26, verse 16. Going to read... Four verses here. This day, the Lord thy God hath commanded thee to do these statutes and judgments. Thou shalt therefore keep and do them with all thine heart and with all thy soul. Thou hast avouched. Uh, clumsy King James word. We can say chosen. I'm going to do that. 
Verse 17, thou hast chosen the Lord this day to be thy God and to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and to hearken unto his voice. And the Lord hath chosen thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he hath promised thee, that thou shouldest keep all his commandments, and to make thee high above all nations which he hath made, in praise and in name and in honor, that thou mayest be a holy people unto the Lord thy God as he hath spoken. All right, well, all four of those verses, I wanted to catch the point in verse 18. The Lord has chosen thee this day. The thee is a, it's a corporate thee. It's all of us. It's the people of God. God chose a people. All right, I don't know if anyone finds any peace or rest in that, but this doctrine of election is a, is an apostolic obsession. It's all through the word of God. And we need to be not only okay with it, but we're expected to find hope and comfort and promise for the future in the fact that we're a chosen people. I appreciate that we're in the Sunday school class and talking about the kingdom that will never fail. And Steve very well made the point that that should be a source of joy to us. We're not biting our nails wondering how this is all going to work out. Is the kingdom of this world going to overcome or not? It's settled. It's done. That is the peace and comfort that come from embracing the doctrine of election. I'd like to move on from here and back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and... Look at some more defining marks of the people of God. We've covered the fact that they are a strange people, strangers in a strange land. They're a scattered or sown abroad people. They're an elect and foreknown people. And we got a little bit of comfort with that now because we understand the election is corporate. Want to move on to the next three marks, the fifth, sixth, and seventh marks. Call them defining marks. Of God's people. God's people are a sanctified people. They're an obedient people. And they're a sprinkled people. Sanctification by the Spirit. Obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We right away see the Trinity jumping out of us. Out at us. Here in the first sentence of the book of First Peter. That is that God is elected. The Spirit is sanctifying, and the blood of Jesus is sprinkling, and obedience is obedience unto Christ. I think it's important to look here at sanctification of the Spirit. We're sanctified to an end. It's not just a high and holy sit on a cloud with a halo kind of a sanctified experience. This is sanctification with a goal in mind. The goal that's in mind is sanctification unto obedience and sprinkling. We are sanctified unto obedience and sprinkling. Well, right off the bat, I think we have a pretty good idea what obedience is. That isn't a a word we struggle with a lot. But sprinkling, we're sanctified unto sprinkling. What would you tell someone that walked in here off the street, never been in church before, come across this passage of scripture and says, what does it mean to be sanctified unto sprinkling? Just be thankful you're out there and I'm up here. Nathan told me this morning he's glad he gets to listen to this message instead of give the message. I kind of wouldn't have minded trading places with him either. It's actually, though, not complicated. What I want to capture here that we don't miss is that sanctification by the Spirit is to serve two purposes. Sanctification is unto obedience and unto sprinkling. So first we're going to talk about obedience. Now you probably think I have that backwards. Because first we're sprinkled with the blood of Christ, we become a child of God, and then we walk in obedience. That's how the Christian life works. That isn't how it is here. I'm actually not doing this out of order. I'm taking Peter's order. And I don't think that he brought up obedience before sprinkling just as a slip of the apostolic pen while he was writing the epistle. 
I think it's in that order for a reason. Sanctified unto obedience and sprinkling. Let's look at obedience first. We should talk about sanctification, but we don't have a lot of time for that. We could take just a minute or two. Sanctification is kind of a $20 King James word. I wonder sometimes why translators would use a difficult word when a simple word would have served just as well. You can call me a suspicious type, but I think sometimes that they were interested in maintaining a doctrine and a theology and an understanding of the church that was important to them. The people that were translating the authorized version for King James in 1611 were churchmen. They were high churchmen. They were part of a state church that was copied off of the Roman Catholic Church. They were attending worship with people that had made no claim to possess the spirit of power of the living God within them, containing grace to let them live above sin. They didn't, they didn't profess that. Basically, all the townsfolk came to worship. Everyone was a member of the church. I don't doubt there were some converted, but many weren't. So to say that the people of God are sanctified, it's easier to use a hard word that's kind of ethereal. I don't know if I can use that word. To imagine saints sitting on a cloud somewhere in some dimension that we don't fully understand, well, praise God, we're sanctified. But a simpler word that would describe sanctification would be different. Different's not a $20 word, it's probably a $1 word. It's not very impressive, but it's a perfectly good translation of the Greek here. And it would read this way, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, different by the Spirit. The Spirit makes you different. If you're a child of God, you're different. You're a stranger, you're scattered, and you're different. Could also say you're made pure, you're made clean, you're made holy. Those are all $1 words. I think this idea of sanctification is helpful if we don't really want to grapple with what it means to be a child of God says here that the child of God is sanctified by the Spirit. He's different because he contains within him the Spirit of power of Almighty God. It makes a difference. The difference that the Spirit makes. The Spirit makes you clean. The Spirit makes you pure. The Spirit gives you power to live above sin. Okay, that's very threatening in an assembly of people where very few of them would profess to have the Spirit of God in a state church type situation. But this is, here it is, it's a defining mark of the people of God. They're sanctified by the Spirit. They are other, they are different. They are clean, they are holy. They are purified by the Spirit. All right. Need to keep moving. That was the fifth defining mark of the people of God. I already said that I I find it very interesting that the sixth mark of God's people comes before the seventh mark because I would have put it the other way around. And I'm going to assume that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows better than I do. And he put the sixth mark sixth and the seventh mark seventh for a reason. To look at that. God's people defining marks. They're elect, they're foreknown, they're sanctified by the Spirit for a reason, unto obedience and sprinkling. Let's talk shortly here about obedience. I don't want to get myself in trouble here. I thought that I just might. But I'm going to make this statement on the authority of the Word of God, and that is that The gospel of Jesus Christ is not salvation by believing true things. Okay? I know this is being recorded. I think it's probably ending up on the internet as I speak, live streamed. I don't know. That's a little intimidating to me. But I'm going to stand by this statement on the authority of the word of God that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not salvation by believing things that are true. 
I had an experience. I don't know if I've shared it here before. If I did, I'm sorry. It fits. I'll share it again. I had an experience with a neighbor who's a uh, profoundly ungodly man. And it left me kind of shaken because he said to me as much as this. I know that I am a sinner. I know I'm headed for hell, but Jesus is the son of God and he died on the cross for me in my place. Because of that, I know that I'm going to heaven when I die. What do we do with that? I won't go down the laundry list of ungodliness in this man's life. No effort to live different. No effort to be pure or clean or to be holy or to live above sin. He has staked his eternal destiny on believing a true thing about Jesus. Son of God died on a cross. Is he safe? I said the gospel is not salvation by believing true things. I'm going to go even further and say that the gospel is not something to just believe. It's something to obey. Obey the gospel. The statement that the neighbor made to me is impossible to obey because it's pure belief. Are you comfortable with the idea that the people of God are defined and marked and characterized by obedience and that obedience is the goal of the gospel. The gospel is not something to just believe. It's something to obey. How do you obey? Jesus is the son of God. Jesus paid the price for my sin on the cross. I'm unworthy. Jesus is worthy. I don't mean to take away from that. That is a profoundly true statement. But how do you obey that? Well, it's pretty simple because there's nothing to obey. And yet God's people are defined and marked by obedience. So we're missing something here. So the gospel is something to obey. I'm glad that I'm with friends here and I don't have to duck tomatoes getting thrown. But in earlier circles that I grew up in, I would have expected to have to duck tomatoes or someone grab me by the arm and pull me down from here for this statement that I made. The gospel is something to be obeyed. No, 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 they would say. Gasping, they would say legalism. Works righteousness. The uh, early Anabaptists were derided for being, they were falsely accused of preaching sinless perfection. They were called, if I have this right, heaven stormers. So what heaven stormers do is by virtue of their sinless lives, they take a battering ram to the gates of heaven. And if God had his shoulders set against the gate to hold them out, he couldn't stop them because their righteousness their human works righteousness would carry them through and God couldn't stop them because look at their lives. They were called heaven stormers for that. They were not heaven stormers, but they did preach and teach that the gospel was something that needed to be obeyed. Turn with me to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. <clears throat> Second Thessalonians chapter one, uh, I'm going to break into the middle of verse seven and say, when the Lord Jesus, did I say this right? I always hear a lot of pages flipping when I set a reference wrong. Second Thessalonians chapter one, second half of verse seven. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. I said the gospel is something to be obeyed, not believed, not just believed. Romans 2, verse 6. Speaking of God, he will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth. Well, I'm going to stop there. Truth. We would 
expect the world to tell us the truth is something you either believe or you don't. But here it is. Those who obey the truth. They obey righteousness, uh, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. Wrath. What I wanted to take out of that was the fact that truth is not a mental concept. It's not something in your brain. You believe truth and you're saved because of believing truth. It says the truth is something to be obeyed. Acts 6, verse 7. The word of God increased. The number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Obedience to the faith. The gospel is something to be obeyed. What do we repent of? When we move from darkness and into light, do we repent of thinking wrong or do we repent of living wrong? We repent of disobedience. Our turn is not from wrong thinking to right thinking. That's part of it. But the turn is from wrong living to right living. We repent of sin. Sin is disobedience. We turn from disobedience to obedience, repentance is turning to obedience. Not to take away from the influence of the new birth. We have the Spirit of God in us. We have the grace of God, ability to live above sin, but we are turning from wrong living to right living. All right. The last final defining mark of God's people is that they are sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. I ask you this morning, are you sprinkled by the blood of Jesus? If you are not, you are not a child of God. But it's kind of a vague concept here. Sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. I want to just talk about it a little bit, what it means. Sprinkling is a powerful old covenant image. It's really not in the New Testament. The word sprinkle, sprinkled, sprinkling, sprinkles... Anything you want to say about sprinkle is in the New Testament seven times. Six times it's in the book of Hebrews and it's talking about the old test, the old covenant and the the movement of the people of God from the old covenant to the new sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkling, sprinkled six times. It's only one more time in all of the New Testament. That's right here in first Peter chapter one, verse one. God's people are defined by being sprinkled by the blood of Christ. So sprinkled is a, is a strange term. It forces us to look back at the Old Covenant. Peter is a Jew, writing as a Jew, and he's saying, you're sprinkled by the blood of Christ. We have to look in the Old Testament and say, what does it mean to be sprinkled by the blood of a sacrifice? The blood of the Old Covenant was not effectual for everyone. It was effectual to atone for sins to those that were obedient. If you were living in disobedience, the blood of the old covenant, the sacrifices of bulls and goats, did nothing for you. Turn to Exodus 24. Exodus 24, I want to see that under the old covenant, You were disqualified from being sprinkled unless you were in a state of obedience. Mm. Where should we start? I want to look at, as we read this, the fact that the people that were going to be sprinkled by the blood of the old covenant had to affirm obedience before they were qualified to be sprinkled. Moses would not sprinkle the people until they affirmed a commitment to obedience. So watch for that. It's twice in these eight verses. He, God, Exodus 24, verse 1, He, God, said to Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou, and Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. Moses alone shall come near the Lord. They shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people the words of the Lord, all the judgments. Catch this. All the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said, 
we will do. Obedience-mindedness of the people. Verse 4, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning, built an altar under the hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood and sprinkled on the altar. I want to stop there. The sacrifice has been made. The blood has been gathered. Sins are atoned for, right? The animals died. The blood's collected. It's in the basins. That blood was not yet effective for atonement for the sins of the people. It was in a basin. He put it in basins. He sprinkled half the blood on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, the law of God. Verse 7, he read it in the audience of the people and they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. Then the people declared their commitment to be obedient. They were obedience-minded. All that the Lord hath said we will do. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning these words. These words was not just the word of God written down by Moses. The covenant is a two-way contract. The people had contracted to obey. God had contracted that he would be their God and they would be his people. That was the covenant. When Moses said, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning these words, he's saying, you made your statement, God made his statement. Because of that, you can participate in the blood of the sacrifice. He sprinkled the people. Because of their commitment to obedience. They were fit to be sprinkled. All right, I want to wrap up. I'm got, I don't even know if this is German words. I am so ignorant, I wouldn't know. I think this might be German. And I'm going to say it wrong, and I appreciate no one laughing out loud. But I understand that the Anabaptists in the 16th century despised the term Anabaptist. And they rejected it because they said infant baptism is no baptism. We don't baptize again. We baptize rightly on confession of faith. What they preferred to be called, uh, I think I have this right, is taufgesint. Somebody help me. Is that even understandable? Sam, say it right. You don't know the word. Taufgesint. Or uh, dupsgesint. You recognize those words? If you don't, I'm sorry I even brought them up. Huh? Okay, I'm not saying it right. Huh? Taufkesint is baptism minded. That's what I was trying to. How did you say it? Taufkesinde. Sorry, okay. Whatever. Taufkesinde. Or dupskesinde. I think one is Dutch and one is German. I don't know. The idea was they preferred to be known as baptism-minded than Anabaptist. Actually, here what Peter is requiring the people of God is that they be obedience-minded. So we find ourselves in the book of 1 Peter confronted with the fact that God's people are defined by obedience, which makes the blood of the sacrifice of the new covenant, Jesus' blood, effective to atone for their sins. The gospel, the truth, the faith is something to be obeyed, not just believed. All right, I'm going to close with uh, the challenge to you all to be obedience-minded, that we don't find obedience to be something that chafes, something that seems to work against the uh, blessedness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't separate coming to God through faith in Christ's blood and being obedient to the word and ways of God. Seven defining marks. People of God are strangers. They're scattered. They're elect and foreknown. They're sanctified unto obedience and sprinkling. Ezekiel 36.
I see I'm well out of time, but I am going to close with this because it's a super good stopping place. Ezekiel 36, verse 23. God says to his people, chosen, elect, he says, verse 23 of Ezekiel 36, I, God, will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I, God, will be sanctified in you before their eyes. God says that he will be sanctified, glorified, exalted, extolled among the heathens when they look at us. He says, I, God, will be sanctified in you before their eyes. He doesn't say I'll be sanctified in their ears when you tell them the truth of the word of God. He says before their eyes, that means they're going to look at you and glorify God before their eyes. Verse 24, for I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. This this speaks of the strangerness, the otherness, the outerness of God's people. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and ye shall be clean from your filthiness and idols. I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. This is prophesying the new covenant, new heart, new spirit. I will take away your stony heart of flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. So here we have the new heart, the new spirit, but it doesn't stop there. He says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall keep my judgments and do them. God not only gives us new spirit and new heart, he gives us new hands. He expects us to walk in his ways. What's amazing to me is that he's entrusted his glory, the glory due his name to his people. And the heathen are to look at his people and sanctify the name of the Lord God. Not because of what we say and not because of what we believe, but because of how